Hello and welcome to Inexos Access All Areas. My name is B, and I will be co-hosting this series of podcasts with my Inexos nerd Hayden Murdoch. We will be delving deep with you all to explore everything there is to know about this iconic band of brothers in excess, sharing music, tours, videos, albums and oh so much more. Well, hello, welcome to Inexcess Access All Areas, the special deep dive episode where we welcome in Thanksgiving for our American friends and listeners and all the Aussies over here who respect Thanksgiving and all people around the world, even Mexico B, who are celebrating Thanksgiving. This is our US edition. Hello, how are you? Uh, I won't ask you in excess week because this is Thanksgiving. Anything <laughs> to be thankful for, B? I'm thankful for you, Hayden. Oh, cheese, cheese, malts. <laughs> and malts. in excess, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> well, as many Americans know, this time of year is where uh, the last, I think it's Thursday in the November period, is where uh, Thanksgiving commences and it's Black Friday then tomorrow and lots of goodies mm. are on sale. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we could see a surge in the US uh, in excess sales on Black Friday, B. Would be nice, yes. Please get into your uh, handbag, get that wallet out and go and get <laughs> some in excess goodies. Um, I've actually updated the website so you can actually go on there and you can go and get your um, in excess records right from right. in excess.com. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. This is a bit of a special episode and we will elaborate in a moment, but uh, uh, we do know after speaking to Tim and uh, Kirk and Andrew over the last, say, eight weeks, uh, they were very, very keen for a lot of the American fans particularly to be thanked uh, for their loyalty over the journey of Inexcess's career. Uh, America was the country that really gave America, well, gave Inexcess their first real overseas start um, in terms of, mm. you know, fandom and touring and, yeah. you know, going coast to coast and and, and uh, releasing Shabu Shabar and, and having some top 30 success with the one thing. And I know they have always been grateful because uh, obviously there was, you know, an Australian band and then, you know, went to America and uh, it was like the domino. Once they got America, the rest of the world followed. But That's uh, right. on behalf of Tim and on behalf of Kirk and mm-hmm. Andrew, they say thank you, America. God bless America, damn rock and roll. Hey, Hayden, I've actually got a gorgeous American woman that'd like to come on and speak to us. Well, about that's something. timely, given this is our American really? themed episode. It yes. is, it is. Okay. So Who I would we like we'd like to well, I'm going Belinda to Belinda Carlisle? Well, <laughs> would you like Belinda? I did promise you Belinda Carlisle, actually, didn't I? I this lady's even more like gorgeous. Belinda <laughs> <laughs> yes. Who have we got? Everybody shame. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the podcast once again. Yeah, nice to be here. What time over there at the moment? 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Oh, my God. The things we do for in excess, hey? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mary's come on to the show today because she's got something to tell us that's going to be added, which was originally part of the fan kit. But we've managed to do something special for all the people that are going to buy the fan kit. What is it, Mary? Tell us. What is it? It is the acoustic radio show that the band did on July 18th 
when they came to the Bay Area to play the war field. The local radio station, KFOG, did this live impromptu, like in the studio, live broadcast. And uh, it was a Friday afternoon. And I was going to go to the taping. It was over in Berkeley at Fantasy Studios. But I thought, you know, I think I'm going to stay home and I'm going to record it off the radio Mm -hmm. because I knew that it was just going to be broadcast live and it would never appear again. That's how they rolled at the time. So that's what I did. I I didn't go to the taping. I just (laughs) stayed home and reported it. And it's such a crystal copy that you got as well, although... The actual recording that they did, they the, the sound didn't really work very well, did it? The, the microphones? Yeah, it seemed like they didn't have the mics, um, I don't know what the word is, amplified correctly, or they didn't do anything of it. They just absolutely played it live on the radio, and that yeah. was the end. Never went back and re-engineered it or cleaned it up. Mm-hmm. And so you can hear some of the mics, like it, it was only Michael... Kirk and Andrew. That's just right. the three of them doing an acoustic thing. Sick. And Michael Dick, you know, so he had a very raspy voice, but he was in great spirits having fun. They started playing um, Need You Tonight and Andrew's guitar string broke. <laughs> and they have another one there in the studio. So there was this long gap of, you know, dead space while they searched around for a guitar string. Got that all set up. Then they finished the song. They actually finished Need You Tonight. They did four songs. They did Need You Tonight. And that's when um, Andrew's guitar string broke and they searched around for another guitar string for a number of minutes. And then they finished the song, Need You Tonight. Then they did, well, Searching was the first song. Sorry, Ah, Searching. That's it. Need You Tonight. And that's when the guitar string broke. And then uh, Never Tear Us Apart and I'm Just a Man, they finished with. Performance came out great, you know, mm-hmm. them singing and playing. Um, it's just when they were asking them questions, you couldn't always hear the mm. answer. Mm. So this was a little cassette that you made up and you used to send it out with all the fan kits. And yeah. there's only one or two out there that are left. So what we've done is we've obviously can't make cassettes and cassettes are quite um, hard to play nowadays because you need the little device to play them. So we've made Mm -hmm. it into an MP3. Mary gave it to myself and I've messed about with it a little bit and brought up the sound levels and got rid of some of that dead space. And it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds really pretty good. It does. Mm -hmm. And this, this is a freebie. This is something I included for free in the fan kits. Um, just as an extra little bonus. And and it still is, you know, mm. with everything um, available in the fan kit. This is just a, a little giveaway freebie. It's a juicy and, little free diamond. That's what I would call it. Yeah. Can't play cassette these days, like you said. <laughs> no, you can't play a cassette. So the fan kits are going to be ready very soon. We're still working on a few little um, glitches that we're trying to iron out. But um, keep looking at the website, everybody. They are coming very soon. So how much are they, Mary? They're $150. Australian dollars, $150. And you get so much in these um, fan kits. Um, the magazines, photographs, 
guitar picks, autographs, and now an MP3 as well. It's just uh, one of those gatefolds that keep giving and giving and giving. Um, I was lucky enough to get mine pretty quickly because um, I used DHL and it came within a week. It was marvellous. So it's the best way to get it. Yeah, I did a little video. I did a little live stream, actually. So if you want to go and have a look at that on our Facebook page on In Excess Access All Areas. Well, Mary, thank you for coming on and sharing that little backstory about the MP3, uh, sorry, about the tape. That mm-hmm. was fantastic. And thank you for staying up so late for us or early. <laughs> and and remember, everybody, there's other things available besides just the fan kit. There's some art prints, uh, some backstage signs uh, from the X tour. I had some of those uh, that management had given me. And then the eight by 10 photo. Yeah. You know, the last professional photo of, of the band yeah. taken so- so a lot of these are inside the fan kit, but Mary has actually reproduced some of them. So they're more like posters for your walls, which are superb. And they're on great photo stock and good quality paper. So I, I would say when when everything's ready, there's probably about four or five different packages that we'll have for you to buy. So have a look and uh, get um, get saving. I know just the, the patrons who have received their um, fan packs and things like that have been so uh, uh excited by getting them it's like it's like a it's like a show bag for us when we were kids you know yeah. like you went up to the fair or you call them the fairgrounds i guess in england you call it the show and you get a show bag with all your goodies so it's like an adult yeah. show bag for them all yeah a bit more than that and now we've just put this little added extra in there as well the mp3 that's perfect we have a, an american flavor to today do you yeah i assume you would celebrate thanksgiving down there whilst you're in mexico mary we will. Yeah. They don't in Mexico, but us Americans around yeah, here. Will you be going so. to someone's house? I'm going to go. Well, I'm vegan, you know, so I'm going to a vegan restaurant for a Thanksgiving feast. Oh, vegan. what will you have then? Uh, Pecan pie. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, they make all, you know, there's wonderful things that you can have. Uh, Seton, which is kind of a, a fermented soybean thing and you can make a loaf out of it and you know mushroom gravy and the mashed potatoes and yeah, cranberry yeah. everything but turkey you know yeah, yeah. sounds great uh, we're gonna get on with the show mary we're gonna say goodbye all right thanks, thanks for your time sleep well. well all right good night bye, bye. It's great to get Mary on. I think uh, her immensely for these what we call adult show bags, but adult in excess show bags, aren't mm, they? Boo? That's a good. That's a good way of saying it, Hayden. A bit yes. more than a show bag, though, full of yes. uh, all sorts of vintage things. Yes. Yeah, we will be putting these onto the website and. For the patrons, you'll be getting a special code to get your discounts, massive oh. discount. Now, this is a slightly different episode. This is more of a, a special sort of drop for us, but uh, just a couple of little bits of news we would throw in is that big kudos to the Mystify documentary that was on in Melbourne uh, and throughout Australia in the last sort of seven days. I think they had two mm-hmm. uh, viewings of that on ABC, one on the Monday and one on the Saturday, and I think over a quarter of a million people sort of watched that show from uh, yeah. the records I've seen. Yeah. And at the time of this drop, I think uh, tomorrow night, which is sort of Friday night, uh, November 26th, 
Live Baby Live uh, is going to be broadcast on the ABC network all across the country. And I know friend of the show, Sam Evans, who's very much uh, intrinsic in the management of the band, uh, has been working on promoting that around the country. So well done to Sam. And if you are somebody who's never seen or anyone in your family has never seen this particular show, we highly encourage you to watch Live Baby Live on Friday night at Wembley. So, yeah, a little bit of news within our special edition, B. It's pretty cool, actually. I think they're doing they're running it for a whole week, aren't they, ABC? They're playing different iconic um, concerts from right. Australia. Mm. Okay. Excellent. And this is obviously the big one. Pole position, Friday night. Pole position, yes. Hey, this is Tim Farris, and you're listening to Access All Areas with Hayden and B. This is Danielle from Pensacola, Florida, and now Topic of the Week. Well, thanks, Danielle, all the way from Pensacola, Florida. Uh, Just for the interest of transparency, this little deep dive today about uh, Everything America is a reboot of a podcast we did do uh, at episode 30. Given the time of year and given a lot of people uh, weren't aware of our podcast, some 50 podcasts ago, mm-hmm. uh, we did want to put this on again, given the time of the year. So uh, if you did listen to it, you know, over a year ago or 15 months ago, hey, listen, have another deep dive. I had to listen today and it sort of even sound fresh listening to I my know. bloody voice. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, we're just good actually reminiscing on a few things there as well. So um, again, as we said earlier, we, we uh, the band and us and everybody love the fact that In Excess were uh, very welcome in America and are still listened to uh, to this day. So, uh, all things America, thank you and uh, enjoy. God bless America. Well, in excess in the USA, uh, this is going to be a fun topic today. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. Now, there's a lot of people out there looking forward to this. They've gone yeah. off on this one, haven't they? Absolutely. Very eager Absolutely. to hear it. Well, look, it'd be nice to sort of uh, relate, you know, the the international band that in excess were to the various sort of markets they, they, they were in and as alluded to earlier, um, they had an impact in the UK. Um, they've had an impact, obviously, in Australia, through Asia, through uh, South Africa, Africa, you know, etc., through South America, massively in Brazil, uh, and places like that. So, um, and you know, different songs, different albums, different tours, different scenarios, different. Um, you know, tunes that resonate maybe later. I mean, if you're an Australian person growing up, everything up until probably, you know, the completion of the swing 
still gets heavy, heavy rotation here. You know, everything from Shibu Shabar to you know, underneath the colours through to the swing itself um, is massive. Like <clears throat> in Australia, essentially, they had a career before they even went to America nearly, you know. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting just to be able to, you know, isolate, you know, the conversation to the American side today because we have a lot of loyal listeners there and there's a lot of loyal fans there. Yeah, I mean, like, like they didn't even buy, uh, get an award until nine years later in America, <laughs> did they? Yeah, that's right, that's right. So, look, just a bit of a backdrop to kick things off. Um, you know, being Australian and being a young band here, um, and even if you think back to sort of like, you know, acting terms or business or whatever there, America is, you know, known as the land of opportunity. It's a, it's a very aspirational uh, epicentre of the world and... Uh, as they say, like in New York, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Well, you know, America probably represents the the Mount Everest of targets for, for, for uh, artists in any sort of uh, repertoire coming through. And the only difference sometimes between actually going about doing it, you know, um, and achieving there is actually the ambition to do it and then secondly putting in the hard work. And I think those sort of two attributes summed up in excess very early, B. Yeah, well, it's such a huge country, isn't it, to nav- yeah. navigate as well? Yeah. So, you know, being an aspirational type of goal, the band, um, I just went back and did a bit of research. You know, they obviously went back into, uh, well, went into America in uh, early 80, early 83, I think, the end of 82. But uh, I know Chris Murphy, when he did take the reins of being the manager of the band, uh, was very, very keen for them to be not just an Australian band, uh, but being an international sounding band, but also be prepared to take it to a bigger market. Mm. Now, Chris was an ambitious guy. He'd seen other bands in Australia like Cold Chisel and the Angels and various other bands at that time, you know, maybe get to a point where they weren't prepared to go overseas and aggressively put the hard yards in, or if they did, uh, they were doing it at a later age when the energy levels were really low. Yeah. And uh, looking back at when NXS did go to America, in, you know, the end of 82, early 83, you know, we had, uh, I think the average age of the band, so the range was between 20 with John yeah. up to about 23, 24 with, you know, Gary. So we were still very young um, and had a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And uh, they sort of, you know, smartly got over there and started doing the touring sort of circuits and things like that. Um, I know uh, in terms of being prepared to do that, they, you know, effectively going from bigger venues in Australia to very small venues, but they did get that chance. And I think a lot of you have probably sort of seen it where uh, they went to that big US festival in San Bernardino where they were one of the, uh, the acts uh, and uh, I think they played in front of like 180,000 people. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. That's the one with the big rainbow above them. Yeah, I think so. But, oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, so they got a chance to get onto that particular um, uh, slot and that was beamed all over mm. MTV. And um, mm. they really, you know, earned the right to, to get on that through doing a, a lot of hardcore touring around. And, and in the footage, the, it looks like the crowd are absolutely loving them as yeah. well. And I found some uh, footage here, 1983, Four Corners, which was like a little new show in um, Australia, followed the band around uh, America. Um, have a little listen to this. This is so much fun. Listen. On the eve of their second American tour this year, the Sydney band In Excess shook off their jet lag after the long flight from Australia. Okay. 
If it is energy which sets apart the Australians from corporate cash register music, the players and their crew will need every ounce to survive the insane pace of the American rock business. The schedule for In Excess begins like this. A five-hour drive north to Fresno, California. Promote, perform, then drive back, arriving in LA at six in the morning, before another performance, and another across America. One oh six KKDJ Fresno is the station in the studio with me at this very minute. A couple guys from In Excess, Mike and Tim. Okay, what do you say we play a song from the LP? Shabu Shaba, which is your fourth, right? Yeah. Only number one in America. We were just talking about the The welcoming news at the Hacienda is that In Excess have sold out the fifteen hundred seat room in a part of America said to be listening to different music. Um, I guess, you know, relating it back earlier, you know, they wanted to, and I think Nick Egan touched upon this the other week, is that they didn't want to be what we call a cultural cringe. We didn't want to go over there, um, you know, like some bands and be sort of idiosyncratically Australian. They wanted to have an international sound. Um, you know, they wanted to almost be, you know, surprised or have interviews surprised uh, that they were Australian. Not that they weren't proud of it, but... Um, Unfortunately, back in that time, sometimes even Australia, Australia as a country wasn't seen as a sophisticated place. It wasn't a very well-known place. We didn't have, uh, you know, internet and certain broader-based information going around. So um, a lot of people's association in America with Australia at that time literally was, you know, kangaroos and the yeah. city. Um, it's true. It's true. Yeah. I did. Yeah, and, and you could probably talk about that personally, being uh, coming out to Australia in the 80s, I guess, yourself. Mm. Mm. I didn't come out in the 80s. I came out in the 2000s, but that's okay. okay. (laughs) But but being in the 80s in England and seeing Australia, it was like a faraway fairy tale land of hotness. Yeah. Heat. <laughs> a lot of heat. <laughs> yeah. but, but it was. I mean, there was just, you know, the cliche snaps and things like that. Just mm. just like probably from, from our perspective, you know, America was Disneyland and, mm. um, and uh, you know, that as a kid that was our sort of association. So so I guess going over there, they, they were proud of their Australian roots, but they didn't want to be defined by them. They wanted to sort of be defined by their success and, uh, and their music and their talent and um, – and their sound and, and be recognised for that. Um, mm. So I guess that was, you know, particularly interesting. Um, I guess, you know, not long after that, you know, they were able to get a chance to go in and record in America. And, you know, going back through some of the, the facts and figures, um, it's really interesting that given all the success they had over there, they only actually really recorded, from my understanding, one song in the whole career in America, which was Original Sin. And, no. Yeah, really? Yeah, we've spoken about that a lot on the podcast and things. Um, but essentially, if you look back at the albums, you know, uh, uh, they had the recording studio, which was Rhinoceros, where they did sort of uh, Listen Like Thieves and, and sort of Kick and X in Australia. They did Elegantly Wasted in Canada uh, with Bruce What about Please? Huh? What about Please with well, Ray they, Charles? Yeah, well, they, they I think they uh, might have had co- got... Ray when he was in Paris, I think, etc. Oh. 
Um, yeah, I think they were doing that one in Paris or whatever. But in terms of fully-fledged albums and doing a whole bunch of tracks and things, you know, it really, I think, is just, you know, Original Sin in New York at the Power Station Studios is a, mm. probably the one rare time that they sort of recorded there. Um, so, yeah, from that sort of point of view, it's just interesting that given, as I said, you know, their, their um, uh, global ascent, that they didn't get a chance to record there as much. Not to say that they would have been better to record there, but it's just an interesting quirk there within the mix. I mean, they, they've recorded some things in New Zealand and they've sort of recorded some things in, you know, uh, I said Canada. Uh, you know, they've done some, you know, little backing tracks and things in Hong Kong or whatever, but most of the albums that got made were generally made in Australia uh, throughout mm. their career. Um, and I guess when you have that recording studio that they owned, it made sense to be like yeah. that. Um, yeah. Uh, from a fangirl's perspective, um, from the uh, the Americans, the, the American girls more so, they, 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 they were very different to a lot of bands who were out there with their swagger, but they were innocent. They weren't like buff and old and they were, and or, or like, you know, like um, Adam Ant coming out with some sort of like hideous sort of makeover. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were real. They were touchable. They were likable. They were fun. And yeah. I think that's what the, the, the fans loved about them and still do, you know, that they're just um, – <laughs> They're real guys and humble with it, but fun. Well, if you think back to that particular era, you know, 1982, 83 was really in the sweet spot of that sort of new romantic movement. Mm. Um, let's let's look at the contemporaries at the time. Yeah. You know, even between 19, say, 80, 1980 and 83, I mean, you had, you know, bands of like Culture Club, you know, breaking out. You had sort of Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, um, Ultravox. Yeah. Um, uh, and a lot of those, you know, from the UK side in America, you probably had the back end of some really 70s, early 80s stuff like sort of Foreigner, um, Sticks. Um, you had uh, some of the metal stuff, you know, that was sort of going around at the time. Uh, and it was just on the sort of the, 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 the edge of some of the sort of the glammy sort of sort of LA uh, rock thing that was starting to come down. Um, and the police were still going around. As they were well, just about they? to finish. They, yeah. they were really on the back end. They, on the back end, yeah. Synchronicity did come out, but they were on their last album tour. And, um, but yeah, it was that. And MTV obviously was breaking, which you know we'll talk yeah. about soon. Um, and and videos was something that I guess for in excess's uh, favorability being in Australia and they were like advertorials to get your music out, you know, to Australians and to people overseas. Yeah. And doing, they had loads. <laughs> yeah. They'd been doing it quite repeatedly and, uh, and cultivating an image and a, and a, and a, and a brand situation mm. uh, and an awareness. Um, and obviously MTV stuff at that time, they were quite short on content, but in excess had the one thing video that I guess, you know, really resonated with, um, uh, MTV and, and having a lack of material, they got a lot of play with that. And that song went top 30 uh, in America, uh, it hit number 30 and the album ultimately is charted and, and did very successfully there and uh, led, led into some other singles being released there, which we'll talk about a bit later. Mm. But um, they got off to that really good start, which was which was was pretty important. Um, so so yeah. Actually, I, there's a little quote here from Murphy when he was looking into it and getting ready for it, and he says that um, none of the uh, the US press even realised that In Excess were even Australian until they're at the third or third or fourth tour. In fact, probably yeah yeah. Um, but you know, again, there was that androgynous type thing going on, and these were mm. these sort of six sort of you know manly hard you know, hard at it, you know, good looking, but could play guys who were 
able to get up on stage at San Bernardino and just rip it. Yeah. Um, and remember, they'd done probably a thousand gigs by that point. I mean, there were yeah. probably bands they were competing with on some of those bills had probably barely played 50 times. Yeah. So it sort of honed their skills, you know. Yeah. Back in those days without, you know, the advent of the internet but early MTV only, which was still very, very sort of, you know, sophomoric in its, in its, um, in its, in its uh, you know, scope, um, the reality was they could play live. It was such a great advertisement of the band. And yeah. culturally at that time uh, especially, People saw live music. People wanted yeah. to go see live music. Bands were the thing. And if you could play live, you know, you built a groundswell of, of a following. And I think that was, you know, really, I guess, to sort of, I guess, you know, uh, round out this sort of intro, that was sort of the time and the era that they were a part of um, and they were able to sort of nail. Yeah. And so we don't often need them back now, don't we? We're all yeah. gagging for some live music now. Yeah, that's right. It's got to look at you. who I guess who listen to our podcast are from different eras, I'm just going to sort of break down the way I, I've looked at InXS's career in America over their sort of journey. And um, the first probably part of the year was that sort of 1983 to 1986 era. And I call that the ascent, you know, the climb, the, the, the beginnings, humble beginnings to some traction there. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that 1983 to 1986. Um, I'm then going to talk about the 1987 to 1991 era, which is I, I call the apex. That was the sort of the pinnacle years where, you know, they were front and centre and everywhere. Uh, and we'll break that down a little bit. Uh, we're then going to talk about 1992 to 1997, which is probably sort of the musical reinvention, but probably unfortunately the sort of the descent in popularity. Um, not so much in quality, of course, but just, you know, movements change and people's tastes, you know, veered and uh, unfortunately they got caught up in, in that sort of, uh, you know, uh, descent a little bit. Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the sort of the 2005, 2006, what I call the sort of the reincarnation uh, sort of period there uh, and touch upon that because there was some, definitely some US, you know, significance uh, sort of during sort of that particular, particular time. Now, um, if we break it down to the first one, which is 1983 to 1986, well, let's just look at some of the music that sort of came out during that particular time. So we had, uh, in America itself, we had Shabu Shabar sort of break into the charts. You know, we had the tours like we mentioned uh, through San Bernardino, the big club tours, you know, the big gigs and things, and they were getting that movement. Um, we then had the situation where the swing got released. Now, the swing probably in Australia, may just edge kick in terms of overall love. When NXS released uh, The Swing in Australia in 1984, uh, a year and a half after Shabu Shabak, uh, I mean, it, it blew up here. It's their most successful 
album in Australian terms, maybe not of sales, but singles and just that mm. massive leap of, of, of going from sort of six out of 10 known to sort of 11 out of 10 known. So um, the swing, you know, with I think Original Sin hitting number one here, Send the Message number two, Burn For You number three, Dancing on the Jetty number, I think, 36. And then they had a whole bunch of album tracks that still get played on the radio these days. Um, that was, was seen as this album that was going to take in excess from the great beginnings, I guess, of Shabu Shabar to really climb, you know, through through America. And, you know, that, I think uh, original Sin hit number one in Argentina and France and was starting to blow up. It had Noel Rogers behind the production buttons and had Daryl Hall on backup vocals, who was the biggest sort of duo in the world at the time. Everything was there for the taking. And um, it was strange and, you know, with such success maybe through a little bit of Europe and, and, and some of the South American countries that when an original sin got released in America, it only hit number 58. Oh. Um, and they were touring and they were getting some traction and things like that. But it's, it's sort of a, a, a period that um, was a missed opportunity. And it doesn't make any sense really because The Swing is such a, a great album. And ironically, as we said on a previous podcast, um, a million units of The Swing were sold on the back end of Kick. <laughs> so people went back and discovered it six, seven years later. It went platinum. But didn't yeah, go platinum yeah. when it was first released. It was one of these sort of hidden treasures where people love kick and went, oh, let me might go back and look at the other stuff. And they sold like over a million units of, of the swing after. You know, if you look back when it was accredited platinum, it was accredited platinum in the late 80s, not in the mid-80s when it was released. Now, if you look in the Story to Story book, okay, you'll notice that there was a gun thrown on stage at one of the concerts in America, out in the Midwest, where the song Original Sin was being played. So I think we've talked about that before, where that song, you know, too racial, too intellectual, um, too sort of, uh, I mean, it was banned on certain stations, um, that uh, it didn't give the album the traction it needed. Okay, so, you know, after the Swing album, they've then gone into Listen Like Thieves. And thankfully, uh, I guess they got the sort of the chart recognition they deserve with what you need in, I think, March 86, uh, hitting top five. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, a friend of the podcast, MM, this morning uh, posted on his Facebook site about this time being the first single uh, and that it was maybe an odd choice to release and it did stiff sort of, I guess, in America. Uh, and then they quickly followed up with what you need. But um, but that breakthrough, I guess, after, you know, the, the sales failure of the swing, I think was such a confidence booster for the band uh, and such a significant uh, achievement for an Australian act. It hit top five with what you need. Uh, the video got nominated for MTV awards and things. Uh, it was really that sort of massive uh, tonic that they needed because being top 30 and being top five, okay, yes, obviously it's 25 the difference, but in terms of airplay, the, the uh, people who then go and buy your album because they love that song was massive. So something like, the, you know, the swing that sold a couple of hundred thousand albums was then translated by Listen Like Thieves selling a couple of million albums. Yeah. That album went number like 11 in America. 
And uh, as a result of that, um, you know, they released some other singles that sort of charted in sort of the the, the relative sort of uh, back blocks of the top 50. But um, they got that recognition. They started playing Carnegie Hall. They started getting, a, I think, a gig at Madison, uh, 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 Madison um, Gardens. Madison Gardens. I'm having a, I'm having a blonde moment. Uh, 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 and I know that's where Nick Egan went to see them and then met Michael and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, uh, so from that sort of point, you know, it was exciting getting that sort of uh, that album, album into, uh, I think, number 11, selling a couple of million uh, records. Um, I guess, you know, the CD movement was coming. I know that sort of around that early 86 period happened and that helped their sales. Uh, they were getting more traction there. They were appearing on a little more uh, mainstream TV shows and things which we'll talk about in a moment. Um and, and things were starting sort of to move for them there in that sort of 1983 to 86 period, uh, particularly the back end of that sort of uh, period there. Um, it then led to the Lost Boys soundtrack, which I think you know that movie, B, the Lost Boys. Yes, uh, yes. And then they were able to put the, the Good Times song on that, which sort of I think sort of went into early 87, just before kick. Um, but there was just movement there. There was confidence there. And um, often Andrew was, is, and, and uh, as, as mentioned, he goes, oh, my God, I've set a top five single, you know, oh, my God, I've got to do it again, you know, rather than go, hey, I've got a top five single. So poor old Andrew, probably the slight pessimist going, I've got to do it all again, you know. Um, uh, but he did it again. So, you know, we've talked about that. But, um, yeah, so that, that got was... a little story about him later, if you can let me talk. Okay, I'll let you talk now. Can I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, when they were traveling across the, the States, which is huge, I've never done it. Have you ever done it? Oh, you did a little bit, didn't you? I've, I haven't traveled across. I've just been to select places, yeah. Yeah. Well, I um, can imagine from one um, city to another, they'd be traveling via the evenings and stuff. So they had to be, um, well, Andrew particularly was very um, hesitant and watched the driver. And um, he decided to go to sleep one night and found out that they actually went straight into a ditch in the middle of the night in the snow okay. so yeah so I said they all they all got out safely but from that day on he made sure he was up at up the front talking to the driver all <laughs> night to keep them awake yeah poor and Andrew and and, and those but good are, Andrew <laughs> <laughs> well they were on a, a plane going out to oh. the out, outback uh, in Cuba P doing the um, yes. uh, which was a uh, kiss the dirt film clip and uh, I guess that was a, a, I think something we spoke about with the pilot. Yeah, he had to grab, didn't he have to fly the plane? Oh, uh, something, yeah. I don't think it got to that level, but uh, it was a little bit dicey. I think when the, the pilot looked half asleep. I, I, think. I think I've heard Tim on a radio show say that he looked across and there was Andrew holding the... Uh, Holding the controls? Holding the controls, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, at my, I think there was something along those lines, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> that man can do anything. Just 
Right. So just in this particular era, uh, for the uh, chart watchers out there, you know, we'll just maybe break down so some of the results they did get on the charts at the time. So in that little 983 to sort of 86 period, uh, the one thing, hit number 30 uh, on the sort of major billboard charts, uh, don't change, uh, hit number 80. Uh, and. Mm. So, you know, again, it's probably uh, a much better song than number 80 as, as evidenced by today, how it still resonates. But they were the sort of billboard results at the time uh, in terms of that particular sort of album there. Uh, I think the album, I hit, hit number 46 from memory, I think. I'm just double-checking. Da, 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 da. Do you um, remember all this stuff? Oh, no, I'm cheating at the moment. I'm just, oh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm well, going back. It doesn't back. look like it. It looks like it's all coming out of your head. <laughs> nah, look, I was 46. That's right. So, yes, yeah, so hit 46 on the charts at that particular time. Went gold. So, gold. Gold in America is like 500,000. Um, the swing, obviously, at the time uh, peaked at 52. So, you know, that in itself just sort of shows that there was just a stalling chart-wise there, which mm. is which is, doesn't make sense. I mean, it went five times platinum in Australia. Um, it went platinum in America eventually. But, um, again, it was on the back end of kick and discerning uh, purchases going back later on and, uh, and discovering it, which I'm glad they ultimately sort of did. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the singles released in America off uh, the Swing album around this sort of period, as I said, you know, uh, Original Sin stalled there at only 58. Uh, I sent a message was released. It hit 77. Uh, and that was really much it from the Swing album. Uh, in, t- in terms of uh, uh, Listen Like Thieves, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, What You Need charted very high, but, uh, you know, this time was the first single in America and went number 81. Uh, and they quickly got out What You Need, which was a smart play, and they went number five. Uh, Kiss the Dirt didn't chart there, but Listen Like Thieves charted there and hit number 54. So, um, again, you know, not massive results on all the individual singles, but uh, enough for uh, What You Need being the eminent one that hit sort of number five to give them that sort of tonic. And I, I guess, you know, that recognition that what they were doing and working towards was was actually going to, um, you know, just sustain them. Like you, that, that, I'm sure the revenue that came through sustained the tours, sustained the recording, sustained, you know, the lifestyle, you know, the production costs, all those type of things. So, yeah. Um, well, I, 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 yeah. I read somewhere that it was mainly um, college radio that um, really got them out and heard. And then they, in, in turn, that would get everyone down to the tours. Um, that well, was yeah, I think the main I, thing because they were, because like you said before, they're not. You can't p- pigeonhole their music, can you? Well, I think if you think back to sort of who sets the agenda of what's cool, it is generally mm. sort of high school to college students. And college radio in America has been really handy for bands like In Excess, you know, REM, um, a lot of bands that sort of started off within those sort of places and where they could get the, 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 the younger ones listening, the ones who would buy concert tickets, the ones that, you know, would go out and see them live. Um, and, and everybody likes to be ahead of the curve, don't they, when they're young? We all like to... Yeah. to embrace things that are slightly new and not well known and maybe you want to own your own band and things like that so um yeah right. i think I, th- I think that even you know echoed in kick when they got the stuff out on college radio pretty early too so um but yeah the actual album listen like thieves peaked at number 11 it sold over 2 million copies um and yeah i guess it was just that that part of that ascent between that 1983 and 86 period where um there was just that confidence boost there it was a, it was just a rec- recognition probably if you think about it, for nine years of work, you know, they're together in 77. By 86, they just got their first top five hit in America. You know, that's a bit, that's a patient band. That's a hardworking band. And that's a result of uh, ambition, aspiration, equaling talent uh, and perseverance. 
and good hair. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and good and good hips. And good hips. Apex years, the, the the years where you know they just blew up and they were sort of really the cultural zeitgeist of, of everything that was going on. Um, it sort of probably started just as I said with the Lost Boys soundtrack in '87 with um, uh, Good Times coming out, and again a lot of the uh, the actors in that movie were sort of cutting edge younger actors who went on to bigger things. And uh, they recorded the two songs for that. Uh, one, obviously, the Good Times song that was probably recorded for Australian, uh, Australian Made, as we said, but they were happy to parlay it into that particular uh, movie. Uh, and then they had a song called Laying Down the Law, also with Jimmy Barnes, that they were happy to sort of record and put into the movie as well. Um, Good Times uh, hit number two in Australia, but I guess in America uh, hit 47. But, uh, again, it was a nice filler song. Um, I think they also had a song called Do What You Do off the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. So between Listen Like Thieves uh, and Pretty like uh, Pretty in Pink, sorry, <laughs> between Listen Like Thieves and Kick, they had the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. They had, obviously, the Good t- uh, the uh, Lost Boy soundtrack and also a little movie out of Australia, B, called Crocodile Dundee. Dundee. Uh, they, they had a song that's still my my worst song of theirs called Different World. Uh, that's for another podcast. Um, and that was a song off the uh, Crocodile the uh, soundtrack that went sort of uh, uh, bonkers in America as well. Uh, but look, the, the the critical part of their, uh, you know, I guess their apex years was the release of Kick. And look, we did a big album review recently. We're not going to sort of do a, a reiteration of that. But look, you know, Kick, you know, hit number uh, three on the charts in America. Uh, it's blown up, I guess, to a sort of level where it's uh, um, sold nearly 20 million copies. It's sold, you know, close to 10 million, I think, in America. Uh, it's actually had a situation where the singles, uh, Need You Tonight, uh, went number one. A very unlikely sounding song to go number one, uh, and that you know, as we all know, uh, you know, achieved uh, great success you know, in the MTV Awards. Uh, they had Devil Inside go number two. Uh, I think it was kept out by uh, Billy Ocean. Uh, mm. I might have said Bobby McFerrin recently, but I think it was Billy Ocean. Get out of my dreams, get into my car, or something like stupid like that. Uh, so Devil Inside was number two. Uh, New Sensation number three. So they've, that, you know, again, the same same rounding out of tracks like the Swing album in Australia. They've had a one, two, and three, like they did in Australia with the Swing. They've had that in America, okay. Um, and then they've had uh, Never Tear Us Apart hit number seven, uh, rounding out sort of the uh, the four major songs that uh, were released there. Um, so you know, that's that's exciting, just sort of seeing sort of what occurred, you know, with that situation. Now, um, I think when you look at that particular apex there. Um, and I think you've probably read story to story, B. Um, they did it a massive amount of touring there, didn't they? Huge amount of touring. Yeah. So it started out with, you know, the, the clubs and, the, you know, the, the, the unis and the colleges and all those type of things, and they were coming off the back end of a very little record company support for the album. 
So they went out and grinded and grafted and things like that, and then they were able to sent into the bigger stadium uh, or the big arenas. They yeah. eventually, eventually made it into stadiums and sort of did lap upon lap upon lap. I think it was an eighteen month world tour, but they must have done America three or four times around that. Yeah, time. and a massive following, like fans, which carried on following them all around the world. Never mind just around America. They actually got on planes and followed them around <laughs> yeah and there's some great footage you know around that particular time you know with of interviews with the band and interviews on tour and 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 uh uh you know fan feedback and things like that and they were you know ultimately they in 88 were the biggest band in the world at that particular year mm-hmm. you know they 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 won the the mtv awards which we'll touch upon in a moment but they uh were selling out everything they were outselling you too that year, who probably come off 87 with the Joshua Tree. Um, their singles uh, were getting high recognition. Uh, MTV loved them. Uh, they were just really part of everything. And, in fact, they even get a couple of references in a couple of movies of that particular era. Now, I know Pedro will love this little statistic, but there was a great movie called The Adventures of Ford Fairlane uh, with a guy called Andrew Dice Clay in the first 10 minutes of that movie. Uh, there's a little reference to, uh, uh, hey, in excess, we're on the phone, <laughs> you know, because they want him to be their security, to be their security. He's like, hey, I don't like kangaroos, <laughs> you know. Uh, and there was a, a, another movie with Dennis Hopper and Kiefer Sutherland at the time where they go over to a jukebox and then I think Dennis Hopper, you know, says, what is inks? Uh, so, you know, when you start, you know, you know they'll probably only one, one hit single away from being on The Simpsons. <laughs> uh, although the Simpsons hadn't really started, but you know, like they they permeated sort of the zeitgeist. You know, they were they they just climbed that mountain. And um, you know, interestingly enough, in Australia, we sort of knew about it, but it wasn't the internet. There was no internet. Um, you know, they came back to Australia and toured successfully, and, and we were all very proud of them. But um, again, you had to be a bit of a connoisseur of music magazines, a connoisseur of MTV late at night to actually find out what was going on. Like, you just mm. couldn't press Google and go, "Oh, I just want to see an excess." sing Never Tear Us Apart live in Chicago like you can do now. You know, like things weren't at your fingertips. So um, I guess, as I said again, they were that big over there. I I still don't think even Australia probably recognised just how big they were. memory is seeing them I can't even remember what the show was and Michael's all in black leather trousers and a black see-through black top yep. and he's singing away and this girl just 
jumps out of the audience. I mean, she's yeah. like somebody that I've always wanted to know. And yeah. I've met, <laughs> she came and found me on Facebook and she says, that is me, that's me. And uh, she uh, she followed them everywhere. She followed them to Europe and everything. Yeah. So they liked them because they were comedy value, these girls. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, her name is Jamie. So hi, Jamie out there. <laughs> she now works in Disneyland for places. Well, I think, I, I know the one you mean. I think that's might be off the X album there where they're playing live in one of the TV shows there. But um, the crowd just were getting into it. Weren't they? Yeah. they were like, they were breaking the rules. That was real <laughs> rock and roll, wasn't it? It was real rock and roll. It was great. Yeah. It was really good. Like every girl's dreams is to jump up there and get a hug with Michael. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so um, in terms of, you know, the chart success, that was, you know, pretty significant. Um, now, in terms of awards, uh, as we've said previously, you know, they, they scooped the pool at the MTV Music Awards. I think there were six awards. Maybe one of them went to Richard, which is a, uh, sort of a director or producer's award. But I think there were, overall there were six awards all up. But they uh, they scooped the pool. And, and, and at that time in the 80s, MTV was the sort of the it go-to sort of critical commercial darling awards, um, I guess, of where, you know, bands took notice. Um, you know, what, as I've said previously, was one of the great injustices, though, was the fact that the old money got one Grammy nomination, which, mm. you know, when you climb the mountain and you're the biggest band in the world and you've both got that unique position of critical acclaim and commercial impact... Um, how they got one Grammy Award off the kick album is still, you know, like like to me, it's it's up there with the JFK, uh, you know, assassination. Uh, you know, it really it really needs some sort of Warren Commission to go back and look into that one. You know, you know because I can't work I can't work it out. I mean, there are there are Mickey Mouse bands and people with you know you know, fake breasts who can't even sing and write their songs are getting five nominations three days ago. Yeah, so we it know just, how that happens. It's just, it was just, you know, an absolute uh, crime. Um, so, uh, so yeah, in terms of that particular sort of period in 87, you know, uh, to 91, they got that uh, one Grammy nomination off Kick. Uh, they got a Grammy nomination off X uh, for Suicide Blonde, uh, which probably then sort of links into sort of the X album. You know, they, you know, had, had really from sort of the end of 87 through to early 89, They'd had massive tours, massive impact on the charts, massive uh, sales. Um, you know, they'd literally been gone from sort of Listen Like Thieves into Kick. They really hadn't had much of a break for probably 10 years, but pro- probably for the better part of five. So they all decided to take a year off and they all went off into different projects, which we will talk about next week. But mm-hmm. uh, in terms of coming back, uh, they came back with the X album and that came out around sort of uh, September, I think, 1990. Uh, again, the world was watching. Um, they got a chance to play at the MTV Music Awards. I think Michael wearing no shoes and his, his kaleidoscope top B. I could see yeah. you salivating there. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, they were playing that particular uh, well, lead single, uh, uh, Suicide Blonde. Uh, and it was like, welcome back in excess. And I guess as a, as, as a chart response, uh, the, the song went number nine. Uh, the uh, second follow-up song, Disappear, written by John and Michael, uh, went number eight, uh, which was great. Uh, the, the, the film clips of both uh, were cutting edge, etc. They had great dance remixes as going on. Um, I guess with the album uh, X, it went number two in America. So it actually went higher on the charts than what Kick did. 
Um, and they'd really sort of consolidated their position. You know, as I said earlier, their, their tour now was not going via buses anymore, B. They had their own plane with the X Factor tour on it. Um, 60 minutes, you know, people can go and download this. They, they'd done sort of a companion piece, like a before and after. So they'd shown them on the bus and the, and the boondocks of America, I guess, in 82, 83. Now they were jet-setting around the world in 91 doing the X Factor tour. Um, and they, they were really sort of, I guess, consolidating their sort of position after the, uh, the uh, Kick album. Um, uh, did it sell as much as Kick? Not quite, um, but it was definitely well-received critically. Uh, I know, obviously, without you know, digressing too much, it really took off in Europe, which gave it sort of, a, a, uh, I guess, a pushback in America as well. Um, I guess it sort of started to stall a little bit on the singles release. You know, um, one of the things which, you know, uh, they did is they released Bitter Tears as the third song. And I was at the time uh, a little bit angry that they did that because I always thought that was about the seventh or eighth best song on the album. Uh, and it went number 46 in the charts. It was their their first song uh, to not go top 10 out of the last seven singles. Um, they had achieved a unique honour in America being the only band since Culture Club about seven or eight years earlier to have six consecutive top 10 hits in a row in America. Uh, and there's some nice footage on the plane where uh, the band manager, uh, the tour manager's reading it out and Michael's there with his newspaper and he's going, oh, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah, he's having a cigarette on his own plane and I'm thinking, yeah, he, he's climbed the mountain here. Um, nice. So, uh, so yeah, for those who say In Excess failed in the 90s, well, not quite. I mean, they, <laughs> they just heard the stats of X, so the, the sales, the chart positions of songs and the album, uh, the tour in 91, um, they were really consolidating the work off, off, off kick. Um, uh, in terms of a fourth single, there's there's no real fourth single sort of listed uh, they released in America, and I, and I think it was a bit of a missed opportunity, you know, with with the work of Never Tear Us Apart um, still translating today. I don't know why By My Side was never released there, and if so, why it wasn't released as a third single, yeah. maybe after, you know, the Disappear, because they it would have charted. It charted in England, Australia, everywhere. Absolutely. I just, just don't know why the ballad... Most mm-hmm. bands always put the ballad as the sort of third, fourth, fifth single on an album. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I just don't know why there, because singles keep you in the charts. They keep people front and centre. They, yeah. they, they, When an album starts to go sluggy, sometimes a great song can come out, like... Digressing for a moment, uh, that Def Leppard song, Pour Some Sugar On Me, (laughs) those really incisive lyrics but great hooks, Um, that song I think could have been the fourth, fifth, maybe even sixth single off uh, the Hysteria album. Yeah. There's a great documentary where the the, uh, the manager of the band uh, or whatever there, or someone working at the record company, et cetera, said, I've never seen one song sell so many records. You know, the album had sold a million records in America, maybe two, off the first three or four singles. That song came out and that album went to like six more million sales. People go, that's a great song. I'm going to buy the album. And sometimes singles, when an album's released since like September 1990, like X, okay, well, you've got, you know, Suicide Blondes released in August, then you've got Disappear maybe in November, and then you've got Bitter Tears in February. But, you know, By My Side, you know, uh, The Stairs, why wasn't that released? Yeah. Um, you know, some of those particular tracks. Um, it was just surprising that maybe that album could have been in the charts a bit longer if uh, and um, more successful.
Right, so moving to 1991, there was another album released in that year, B, but it was the sneaky little live album, Live Baby Live or Live Baby Live. Uh, so that, again, was probably sort of a, a reflection of 10 years of uh, international sort of touring and recording, and they didn't put a live album out by that point. In fact, a lot of bands, uh, I mean, you 2 had just come off the Joshua Tree album, but also Rattle and Hum, which was a live album. They'd also had, uh, I guess, uh uh, Wide Awake in America, which was an EP live album. They'd had uh, Under Blood Red Sky was a live album. Um, so some of their contemporaries at that time already had three live albums out. So for Inexcess mm. to put one out was sort of well overdue uh, and sort of sometimes a handy little filler in between studio projects. It keeps a band's name up there. Um, they recorded and released uh, the song Shining Star as a sort of a, a single for the album, uh, which obviously sort of uh, charted uh, in the UK and Australia, but uh, didn't chart very heavily in America. Um, but uh, that album in America did go on to sell. It's an interesting statistic, B. It sold uh, over a million copies and went platinum. But the funny thing about it, as, an, as a sort of a, uh, an album itself, uh, in terms of, say, uh, I think the song Shining Star, um, it didn't chart in America, but uh, uh, the actual live album, uh, Live Baby Live or Live Baby Live, depending on what you like to call it, um, that particular album, uh, I think, uh, peaked uh, at something like, what was it from memory, I think it was 72 only. Now, 72 on the charts probably feels like it goes in and out, but it actually went platinum. So it just sort of stayed around and was a slow grow and a, and a sort of a, uh, a slow seller. But over time, it went platinum, uh, which is over a million units sold. So uh, again, if we look back to sort of the, the trail, we've got gold for, for uh, Shabu Shabar, 500,000. We've got uh, over a million uh, for, for the swing, which is platinum. We've got over 2 million for uh, Listen Like Thieves, which is double platinum. We've got, you know, I think officially 6, 7 million, but I think it's closer to 10 now. Uh, for kick and uh, we've got uh, X which I think has sold over two to three million uh, and now we've got another platinum seller in Live Baby Live so you know really a consistent run um, there are bands that are in the Hall of Fame Rock Hall of Fame that have gone nowhere near that level uh, of uh, chart consistency over sort of a, a nine-year period you know let alone a five-year period you know, I mean, let's remember Guns N' Roses and the Rock Hall of Fame. Well, they've really got two albums, you know, uh, Appetite for Destruction and then the Two Usual Illusions, which is sort of, you know, two albums combined. Um, and, and they got in the Rock Hall of Fame in their first bloody year of eligibility. Yeah, so this period here, 87 to 91, is a really fruitful period for the band, both commercially, critically, you know, award recognition, um, just part of, you know, even that, even in the early 90s, around 90, 91, you know, recognising those top two, three bands in the world um, and in America really consolidated their success.
to the 1992-1997 sort of period here, which um, really starts off in my eyes really excitingly, and I guess as we all know, you know, around 97 ends uh, tragically, um, which we'll lead to in a moment. But uh, 1992, the sort of the band have uh, just a bit of a backdrop. They've gone to the ARI Awards in uh, Australia and they've won Best Band uh, for, I think, uh, you know, global recognition again of Live Baby Live, Wembley, etc. There, uh, but from an American point of view, the uh, Spinal Tap guys actually appear at the ARI Awards, and Tim <laughs> and uh, I think Andrew and Kirk, uh, Kirk loves a good award show, uh, were all there uh, and getting their awards from the Spinal Tap guys, and they 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 loved it because they used to play that on tour around America all the time. Um, <laughs> But, you know, they've gone uh, into the recording studio to make Welcome to Wherever You Are with Mark Opitz again. And um, I know that particular album, you know, Mark wanted to have a very musical sound. Mark sort of felt like, you know, X was a good album, but maybe it was sort of retreading the sort of the kick coattails. And I think with Welcome to Wherever You Are, without doing the deep dive today, uh, it really was uh, a sonic and, you know, lyric and and musical sort of accomplishment that um, I think to that time, showed off all their versatility, both, you know, arrangements-wise, um, uh, production-wise, uh, versatility-wise on one album. Yeah. Now, that particular album, you know, was, let's just go back to the time of 1992. We were having a sort of a musical revolution around the world at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Nirvana had released uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit and Nevermind in around about October 91. Uh, I think uh, U2 had just released Uktong Baby in November yeah. 91. Uh, I think that uh, REM's Out of Time had just been sort of released early 91, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had sort of the advent of grunge. So, you know, you had bands like Soundgarden, you had bands like uh, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains. When you get a bit of a, a sort of a new number in the decade, like 1991, 92 and things like that, when a decade changes, you will look back in history and music how, you know, there is a bit of a, a switch. You know, the late 70s you had, you know, disco. But that really sort of was sort of a very short-lived exercise. The late seventies, you had punk that sort of came and went, and you went into the new romantic movement. Even the sixties, late sixties, you had that psychedelica stuff that then sort of went into um, uh, singer-songwriter stuff, and you know, especially in America in the in the early seventies. So the start of a decade is always a challenge period for a band to create relevance. And uh, in August 92, Inexcess came out with Welcome to Wherever You Are. And ironically, the UK that had pegged the band and hassled the band and abused the band for years were effusive in the praise of that album and it went number one its first week. Um, In America, though, uh, it only hit number 16. Um, And... You know, I guess if you look back through some of the, the documentaries and the, the liner notes and some of the commentary to the time, you know, even though the album went platinum there eventually, it really was a commercial failure in America. Um, they'd come off two, three million with X plus the global sales and the high singles there um, to hit number sort of 16 there, which, um, again, uh, was seemingly a, a bit of a... a, a uh, a negative outcome, uh, especially for an album that really was at the time, uh, you know, cutting edge with its sounds. It was really a band trying to come back up and be relevant again and, and think it up all again. Um, so to me, it's always my, my greatest disappointment uh, about America, if I can actually be harsh on you American fans, not our loyal fans and the band's loyal fans, but the greater part of America for not getting it. 
for not understanding it. And, uh, you know, I guess you two had come out nine, ten months earlier with Uktong Baby and um, had sort of, I guess, gone from sort of more the, the Christian rootsy sort of rockers and things like that to this, you know, um, industrial German product produced um, uh, dancey, you know, uh, fusion type sound, which ironically in excess were probably a lot of those things. And Chris Thomas, who, who uh, uh, I guess produced a lot of, uh, you know, both Thieves and Kick and, and X, was very much like, oh, yeah, Mysterious Ways off Uktong Baby very much is an NXS sound. So, you know, sometimes NXS maybe were victims of their own continual versatility over their career, the fact that they could play anything at any time. But the reality was Welcome didn't quite hit the levels commercially that it needed to. However, you know, they didn't go without some chart success in the single side. Um, they, you know, excellently made a very smart choice in America, and that is that they actually released uh, Not Enough Time over there as the uh, as the first single. Uh, and uh, that actually hit 28 on the charts there. Uh, and I guess if you think back to that era there, you had a lot of bands like Boys to Men and, and this sort of uh, R&B thing going and hip-hop sounds. I mean, uh, you know, Not Enough Time and even Taster had sort of a hip-hop sort of type backbeat in it. But it went number 28 uh, in America. Uh, they also went on to release uh, Beautiful Girl that went 46 uh, and got a Grammy nomination for Best Video, uh, deservedly. Uh, Taste It only went to number 101 there uh, because that was banned because of the lewd nature of the video, apparently, B. Uh, you like I don't the know what you're talking about. You like the Taste It video, don't you? No. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I think Heaven Sent, you know, uh, you know, got some... Uh, some traction on the alternative charts and the mainstream charts, but not necessarily on the Billboard charts. Um, but effectively, sort of two top 50 hits, uh, a platinum album. And unfortunately, because they didn't tour the album, you know, they didn't get the live sort of lift in sales they would have got if they toured it. Um, and again, it was just sort of a sort of a, a, a time where, you know, the band were probably, you know, very, very um, much, you know, we're going to have a year off touring. We don't want to tour the album. We deserve a little bit of a break. You know, after going back off their heavy X and the live baby life stuff and, and all the work they did in Europe, they just thought, well, maybe we can have a rest on this album. Uh, at the same time, uh, Automatic for the People by REM came out and they didn't tour that album. Um, and again, it always seemed to affect NXS. If they didn't tour, people used to keep forgetting about them in America. Yeah. Right? So, you know, they didn't quite, they weren't there every sort of 12, 18 months touring live. I don't think there was a, a loyalty amongst some of the American sort Goodbye. of fans that there was, say, in, in Australia, naturally, um, uh, or, you know, later to be the UK, although it's probably an unfair comparison because the UK weren't very loyal early. Um, I just think NXS always seemed to sell more and do better when they toured. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and disappointingly, what was a great album uh, and did great in the UK and, and serviceable in Australia was really just not understood by America and not embraced. Um, and... Yeah, I, I, it's it's just a bit of a sticking point for me where I love America, what they've done for the band, but I just felt America let the band down on this album when it was one of their finest releases. B, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I have to agree there. I really do because um, it's an, an excellent album. It's something that I overlooked for a while, though, I must admit. I mean, yeah. like, I think, I, I think perhaps everyone was looking for something fresh and new and it wasn't so much the music. It was um, the, the actual bands. So like your Nirvana and you know, we had Britpop. So the old bands sort of like got pushed to the side, but you too, they managed to keep in there, didn't they? 
They well, had a lot of backing. They, they, they sort of just got in before grunge hit. And mm. I think for them what was, was decisive was that they, they'd released the Joshua Tree in 87. Yeah. They'd sort of packaged Art Rattle and Hum as a live type of album at the end of it. So it was really like a, a sort of a, a part of that Joshua Tree era. But they went away for such a long period. They came back literally, it was like four and a half years between studio albums. And the world was wondering what you two would be doing. And when they came back with something so cataclysmically different, I think they got the respect and then they got the press on their side and then alternative fans liked it and they got a new audience. And as I said, they got that second album lift. I think, I think that they sort of, it was, it was almost like they sort of stripped off one persona in the 80s and came back with a different persona in the 90s. Yeah. And, and it's still decisive. You go back and listen to a Bono interview in 87 and you look at him now, he's a different guy now, you know, is he different because he's more himself and more comfortable? Maybe. But but there was just this seismic sort of shift there. Now, within excess, in excess probably were more seen in the 80s as that literally like the name, band in excess, excessive, big, boisterous, loud, uh, atmospheric, you know, anthemic or whatever there. Welcome to Wherever You Are is a little bit more of a thoughtful album. It's a little more yeah. measured. It's a little bit more musical. It's a little bit more artistic um, and, and, and a band really – digging deep into their, I don't know, their aspirational, um, I guess, motivations and coming back with a piece of art. Yeah. And um, sometimes a piece of art is hard to market, you know. You need record company support. And I don't think the record company over there, you know, really ever were, were, were good enough for the band. I think Chris had to be over there at the time and maybe Chris wasn't over in America as much in 92 as he was in 87. Yeah. But I think that that sort of slide and that descent came uh, when that occurred. And, and then the band sort of did something which, you know, I guess musically-wise I'm glad they did it, but probably marketing-wise wasn't very smart. And that is they went in and recorded another album so quickly after and released it so quickly after that Welcome never got time to breathe or never got time to be relaunched that they had another album coming out and uh, Prince was always at odds with his record label Warners for always releasing too much music too quickly um, often the, the, the theory was record the album, release the album, release four or five singles, tour it for a year and a half, let it breathe, let it develop go back in the studio, record an album by the time that it comes out again it's two and a half years Whereas Prince had so much material, he could have released the album every Thursday. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so in excess, you know, there was there was a discussion point in one article I remember saying, oh, they just had put out too much product in the 90s. But that kick in 90, which was, a you know, a three-year gap after kick. Uh, so that, sorry, that kick, X, sorry, 99, which was a three-year gap after um, kick. They had the live album at the end of 91, welcome the end of 92, and they had Full Moon Dirty Hearts at the end of 93. Now, you know, you could say they put out too much product and, and the marketers didn't like it, but, you know, the Beatles had Rubber Soul in 65, you know, they had Revolver in 66, they had, you know, uh, Sgt. Pepper 67, the White Album 68, uh, Abbey Road 69, you know, it didn't hurt them too much. So if you've got the songs and it's coming out at a rate of quality, I don't regret what they did. Yeah. Because I think, you know, without going into full moon at the moment just yet, I mean, that was a great album in itself. But I think where, you know, the marketers and the record company support and touring, et cetera, there, and then some slight sort of changes and, you know, your 20-somethings or uni college students who are on kick are now out in corporate America not going to gigs anymore, you know? They're growing up and there's another generation coming through and it's really hard to tap into future generations and find two or three in a row. Like, it really is difficult. Um 
but it's just dis- you know disappointing for me that Welcome wasn't quite given the that extra sort of lift that they needed. And I think if they'd had of, we'd still see them today, and they'd still be seen much differently, and they'd be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame anyway. Yes. If they did get that recognition in America for that. Welcome. I believe you're right, definitely <laughs> right there. So a measured rant today within the topic, B. <laughs> yeah, I hear, I hear you. I hear And I, I, I support you on that as well, definitely. Well, I remember at the time, because I was sort of 21 and uh, so much looking forward to the albums and I was in the sweet spot of really understanding and I was reading every article and reading every chart and buying every publication and really writing it to see if this album would give them that lift. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's an album that, again, you know, when we talk about the UK, uh, we'll probably flip it on its head and talk about how positive an album it is in the UK. But in America, it's the defining sort of year where uh, some of the passing fans or the, you know, the... Got lost. I, yeah, the, you know, the This and Like Thieves Kick It X fans just drifted into yeah. um, not giving a shit as much, you know? Mm. Um, and that's just the way it was. into, you know, Full Moon Dirty Hearts. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but look, it obviously got released in America. Uh, unfortunately, it, uh, I think, only hit number, like, 53 on the charts. Um, again, you know, probably the same issues. You know, the record companies were changing at that particular point. You know, in excess, as we've said previously, it started off with, I think, Atco, and then they've gone into sort of Atlantic and, and, and different sort of record company sort of situations. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was great, you know, at certain times, but... I just think that their record company was changing at that particular point. They ended up switching to Epic, um, but they were really let down by their US label at that point. So much so, I think the album's deleted now. You can't even buy it in America, which is a bit of a shame. Um, so uh, I think from singles-wise off the album, etc. there, um, you know, the, the, the gift, you know, was released, but, you know, only hit sort of alternate sort of chart success. Uh, same with Time. Uh, Please You Got That didn't chart, even though it had Ray Charles on it, which was great. Um, yeah, they were just going down the slippery slope into oblivion in America. And um, again, they didn't tour as much there. Um, they did the Letterman show with Ray Charles and a few things. But yeah, it was just a, that sort of continuation there. And look, not long after, you know, um, Full Moon Dirty Hearts, they really sort of just went their separate ways for the better part of four years outside the, the greatest hits album, 94. They did a bit of stuff in the UK, a little bit of stuff in America promoting it. But um, from 94 uh, to 97, they sort of just went their separate ways. And, um, look, thankfully, the the Greatest Hits album, um, uh, and you might not know this, B, but the Greatest Hits album that came out in 94, there was three versions. There was an Australian version, a US version, and a UK version. Uh, the American version had a 16-track uh, edition and it had two new songs on it, The Strangest Party and Deliver Me. Uh, so you can't get Deliver Me on any of the other versions on the American one. Uh, it only went to 112 in America, but it still went platinum. <laughs> so it just meant that over the years between maybe 94 and, and, and the early 2000s, people just gradually bought it and it hit over a million sales. Um, I think Full Moon prior to that only hit 155,000 official sales. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that 93 to 97 period, you know, I guess was that sort of, again, that continuation of just a little bit of a slide. Um, they took a lot of time off. 
Um, they got back to do Elegantly Wasted um, and uh, they uh, were able to sort of record that up in Canada. Uh, all the songs were really Andrew and, and, and uh, Michael driven. Um, and, and look, they got a little bit of traction with uh, the, the title track. Um, I know it got uh, into the late 30s in the charts, more than this on the mainstream charts, but uh, they did sell out some good tours. There was a little bit of a comeback feel of things. There's some, some really good interviews. If you do dive deep out there and look, there's a great interview with Michael on the John Stewart show. Uh, there's a good one with a band play on Rosie O'Donnell, Rosie O'Donnell's show, and then they all get interviewed. And um, look, there were a lot of fans of what went to that sort of elegantly wasted tour as such. But um, um, we all know sort of what happened, you know, in the later reaches of '97 with Michael. Um, and I guess you know that American period of '90 sort of two to '97 was a sort of a gradual descent into where you know I guess unfortunately Michael passed, and uh, the band really I guess from an American point of view were an afterthought. talk about this later in our narrative series but the band came back uh in america that is and one of the biggest ways that they did come back was putting on the rockstar in excess show which was um you know production wise and 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 quality wise just an excellent show to to watch um i know you know some might say it's bad taste to replace your lead singer and to do it via a reality show but you know let's look at the 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 circumstances you've got a, a bunch of guys in their late 40s early 50s uh, or probably late 40s at that stage, they wanted to play music. They'd been away from music for seven years. You know, I think ACDC, when, uh, you know, Bon Scott died, were away from music for seven days and didn't record for seven weeks. So, you know, I think from a tasteful point of view, Inexcess did sort of do proper homage, reconsideration, you know, and then when they did decide to come back in 2004, they'd thought about it. But just because Michael passed doesn't mean they don't deserve to have a career or don't deserve to play music or be together because it wasn't their choices to see what happened to Michael. Exactly. And I feel strong about that. Um, whether you like the JD years, whether you like the Switch album, whether you like whatever, I still think that they did approach it and, and record and 
and come back with good intentions to want to basically pursue a further career. Uh, and uh, the Rockstar in Excess show uh, was a great way of marketing in terms of propelling yourself back into 2005, into the 2000s, because reality shows were the big thing. Um, you know, uh, to pick a singer on a show and to go about it and whatever there could it be deemed to be, to, uh, to be tacky to some point. I, I understand that. Um, would have I preferred them to go a different route? Probably. Um, but that show was its number one show in America in its time slot. Uh, it helped the Switch album get literally back into, uh, in excess into the charts. Uh, the album hit number 17, which uh, was great. Uh, it, it, it just sold just short of gold status at the time. Uh, Pretty Vegas, the lead single off the album, B, hit 37. But uh, you might not know this, but that time in 2005 when it hit that number, Downloads were only new as a forum for, uh, uh, I guess, measuring success. So they used to measure singles still by the old go to the store and buy the CD single. However, that single went gold, that's pretty Vegas, which really means it was a top five single. They don't, you don't buy songs from the shop anymore, do you? <laughs> so, so in reality, if you apply the metrics at the time as a gold single, pretty Vegas was a top five, top 10 single. Uh, albeit the official charts at the time recognised it at number 37 um, by virtue of the, of the metrics they used at the time. Uh, it also went gold in Canada and you know, its nearby neighbours. Uh, they had obviously other singles in Afterglow, Perfect Strangers, uh, etc. off the album, I think Devil's Party. Uh, didn't do a lot in America in that particular time, um, but uh, from a chart sort of point of view, uh, they were able to sort of get things cranking sort of from there. Uh, a little side note, B, an album that you love is the original Sin re-record album, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Now, again, uh, what people don't always know is that there were two hits off that album in America on the dance chart. So the Rob Thomas one that came out uh, on that album was released as a single in America, uh, and uh, from the dance charts in America on Billboard, it went number one. And then the second one they released, which was the tricky version of Mediate, was released as a single in America and went number five on the dance charts. So even though, you know, the album itself was probably, you know, didn't sort of, you know, smash records and things like that in America, they were able to get two top five hits in the dance charts, which I know the band were very proud of at the time. Uh, and I think, you know, that tricky version of Mediate, I just love that version. You know, I think it's really sort of, is real cutting edge. And Michael would have loved the fact that Tricky was on a in excess album because... Michael's such into that um, Bristol sound. Atomic fate, mediate, clear the state, activate, not radiate. A perfect state, food on plate, gravitate, the earth's on weight, designate, love is fate. In 98, we all rotate. In 98, we all rotate. Mediate, alleviate, try not to hate. Love your mate, don't suffocate. On your own mate, designate, your love is fate. One more state, a human free, number eight. Channel trade, the broken crate, a heavyweight, or just too late, like pretty cake, that's sex on mate. Devastate, appreciate, depreciate, fabricate, emulate, truth dying. Alright, now to wrap things up about our US in America, you know, I don't want the sort of the last part to sort of sour what I think about America or even the band. I think the band love America, appreciative to America. It's probably bought most of their properties from what they achieved in America. 
you know, I just was always just a little bit sad that sort of the welcome onwards period wasn't as prolific. Um, but you know what? I look back as an overall package now of, of achievement there. And, you know, I know myself personally, I thank America for, for embracing them and giving them the life that they deserve and providing the forum and even the, still the, the, the platforms these days through Spotify, through radio, through all the different streaming services that uh, people still get a chance to enjoy them. The fact that we exist as a podcast, B, is probably due to America and some of the big companies there that have created the social media platforms for us to get heard. So if InXS can still have an audience worldwide through our platform, through their music, through the streaming services, we're very grateful. However, I do have a few little sliding doors moments, B. Do you remember the movie Sliding Doors? I do. Right. Well, I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, in excess of being the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if a couple of these things may have gone their way. Okay. So I'm going to read a couple out to them. What if the band actually lived in America rather than in the UK during the 90s? So Andrew and Michael lived in the UK. But what if Michael, as a superstar, had have lived in America and was on Californian TV and New York TV and being a, it's almost like sort of a, a go-to guy in the media and being a bit more of a, a media personality than the shy guy that he was off stage. I wonder what would have happened if he would have been, uh, you know, that, that would have helped the Hall of Fame chances. What if Welcome to Wherever You Are had the critical acclaim but also the commercial acclaim? Well, I think I've treaded that. What if they toured the album there would have made a difference? What if Billy Ocean didn't actually hit number one instead of Devil Inside? Would two number ones made a difference to Grammys and equal a difference to the narrative? What if they released seven singles off Kick? You know, everyone hears Mystify and Kick and Guns in the Sky. Well, they're virtually singles. What if they released all seven of them? What if they released five singles off X? What if they released The Stairs first as a single, not Suicide Blonde? Stairs is a is a better song musically and lyrically and whatever there and more mature. Would it have been seen as a step up from Kick? What if, okay, Andrew did more media like he does now over there? We can't get Andrew away from a camera now. We love Andrew. But what if Andrew, that superstar, the Brian Wilson of In Excess, the little quiet guy up on the keyboard, what if he was that little superstar up there that could have just given the band a second profile over there? Okay. What if InXS played the media game that you too did with Bono and cause marketing and attached themselves to every major cause and were more, you know, I guess out there like playing the media game? Would have that helped them? You know, what if they wrecked more hotel rooms and stuffed up more things like Guns N' Roses did and were more controversial? Would have these things made a difference? Well, you know, it's funny. Sometimes people reward information. What if he hadn't have banged his head on the on the concrete? Yeah. What What if he hadn't have had the accident? Yeah. You know. And and, and I think that yeah. had a, a big play to a lot of him not touring so, so yeah. much and not being in the media. But then, like you say, then Andrew or Tim could have stood up a bit more for the band, maybe. Yeah. You know, but. But, yeah, and Tim, you know, it could have been that other superstar over there. Like, Tim is such a good media guy, likeable guy. Yeah. Um, and was his band in a way. You know, what if he just had, a, you know, lived in America and, 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 and done things over there? Now, you know, I'm not here to say should have or could have or would have, but, you know, he had family. So what if? But, you know, there's some what ifs there. But here's the thing. We should all be proud of them. America should be proud of them. And we will see them one day in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And maybe just one day, just one day. Mm -hmm. Welcome to wherever you are. We'll get the kudos it deserves and get a lift. 
yes. and, and give a different perception of slant on the band than the one that exists. But America, we salute you. We are more grateful than negative. And we ask for your continual support over there to get the band in the Hall of Fame because it is an American institution. There are worthy bands in Australia and the UK that you've never heard of that won't ever get looked at that surpass some of your homegrown bands, okay? Midnight Oil, Crowded House, okay? You know, uh, uh, The Jam. You know, some of these bands, Duran Duran aren't even in. You know I mean? There's some bands around the world that aren't even getting recognised. No. We want America to be more global and be mm-hmm. more looking outside your back garden because there are many bands like Inexcess that should be in. Yeah. So, here, here. America, thank you. We've got a little bit of work to do. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Mr. Hayden, again. So much knowledge you have and uh, really, uh, really enjoyed this uh, show. I, I felt like I was part of the listenership there. Thank you. No problems. And look, just one little thing I forgot to mention that I wanted to do is that, that even though they didn't record a lot of stuff over there, um, they released a lot of videos over there and there's lots of great footage there. And just one, if you're a, a fan that don't know everything about them, go download or Google on YouTube, whatever, uh, the Everything film clip uh, with uh, the band of um, Elegantly Wasted. It's such a great film clip with a band coming to sort of an amphitheatre and then there's the crowd around and they sing together. It's such a great film clip made in America and I really love it. And, uh, you know, it's not a a well-known song or a well-known clip. Um, You know, we know that they, you know, Devil Inside, which is more known there in sort of, I think, Huntington Beach and things. But the Everything clip, guys, do us a little favour. Put that one on. It's such a great song, a great clip, and it is a, a great little sort of video that Americans should be proud of too. Hey, it's Matt Dean from Wangaroda, Australia, and you're listening to In Access Access All Area. This is Sheila from Birmingham, Alabama. Hey, this is Susan from Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, this is Maiti from Montreal, Canada. This is Suzanne from Los Angeles, California. And that's a wrap. All right, B. Well, it's good to reminisce, uh, I guess, ourselves listening to uh, that podcast. Yeah, and if you missed it last year and you were able to capture this year, you know, hey, kudos to you. We mm-hmm. hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we should say this is uh, one of two drops this week. We will have uh, a special episode going out uh, on the usual time slot on sort of Sunday Australian time. Uh, what is where, it? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Well, it's it's Andrew Ferris absolutely diving deep on his mm, friendship with mm, Michael. It is. Uh, with one or two songs off Welcome, we still had to add into the review. We but did. it is a little bit more about Andrew and Michael, and we thought there's some really golden moments there that mm-hmm. we were very excited to share with you, and we're very thankful for Andrew for opening up and giving us those moments. Yeah. All right. Well, going out for this particular US, uh, I guess, edition, we uh, last year when we did the Thanksgiving, we went out with an excess at the MTV Awards introduced by Arsenio Hall after they hauled and swept the stakes of all the Mm. awards that night. Uh, this year, we thought we would go back to where it started in America for NXS, and that was at the US Festival, uh, the US Festival there in 1983, uh, where NXS were playing along with bands like The Clash and U2 and many other luminary bands of that era. But we're going to go out with a sort of one-two punch here of The One Thing 
followed up with Don't Change. And uh, uh, it's uh, <laughs> 8 minutes 49 of pure live bliss. Wonderful. And you hear a rather young Michael. Like yes. his voice is still, you know, he's only mm. 22 years old. So, mm. you know, his voice is, is probably not as strong as it was to be later on. So take that into account. But it was still an awesome gig and an awesome performance. So uh, it's a goodbye from me, B. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll see you on Sunday, everyone. And it's a goodbye from B. Goodbye, everybody.